Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. I'd like to tell you about a fantastic new book that just released from Hanover Square Press called Femina, A New History of the Middle Ages Through the Women Written Out of It by Dr. Yanina Ramirez. The Middle Ages are seen as a bloodthirsty time of Vikings, saints, and kings, a patriarchal society that oppressed and excluded women. But when we dig a little deeper into the truth, we can see that the Dark Ages were anything but. Oxford and BBC historian Yanina Ramirez has uncovered countless influential women's names struck out of historical records, with the word femina annotated beside them. As gatekeepers of the past ordered books to be burned, artworks to be destroyed, and new versions of myths, legends, and historical documents to be produced, our view of history has been manipulated, and women of the Middle Ages have been almost entirely written out until now. In Femina, Dr. Ramirez invites us to see the medieval world with fresh eyes and discover why these remarkable women were removed from our collective memories. Femina by Dr. Yanina Ramirez is available now. Pick up your copy at your local bookstore. Hi, my name is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today with Ruha Benjamin. She wrote the book, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. Ruha, thank you for joining us today. It's an honor. Thanks for reading, Ashley. And my first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? Feminism to me is a commitment to uproot oppressive structures of all kinds, gender oppression, but also I don't think you can practice feminism without also working towards uprooting racism, ableism, classism. And so it's a practice. It's not, it's less of an identity to me, but it's something that we do and strive to do better and better in terms of our advocacy and our commitments. Yes. And what is viral justice about? Viral justice is a lens that we can look around us and see how seemingly small actions, decisions, habits can have exponential effects. Oftentimes we look for change, top-down change, policy change. We look to those who are in powerful positions waiting for them to act. And viral justice is a way for us to look right underfoot at the things happening in our own neighborhoods, our own communities, our own networks, the ways that people are doing both seeding new practices and new structures and everyday interactions and organizing, but also uprooting the things that harm us. And so it's those two things, uprooting and seeding the world that we want, that viral justice is trying to attune us to so that we can appreciate all the different efforts that are happening and feel emboldened by it and energized rather than disillusioned because we don't see the big, large-scale changes happening. Yes, and we see that during election seasons, it's like, well, I voted. Why hasn't the change happened? And this is a conversation that is generational. It's been happening for decades. And that's what I appreciated most about viral justice is that it continued to be defined throughout the book. It wasn't like, Viral justice is Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition of it. It was continuously talked about throughout the book, and you provided so many great examples to exemplify what your thesis for 
viral justice is. In part, it's because I'm so bad at definitions, Ashley, even when you ask me my definition of feminism, because for me, so many of these, these things are, I'm looking for how it's happening because a definition is nice and concise, but oftentimes it doesn't show us what's the evidence. <laughs> well, show me how it's happening in the world. And so I think it's partly because I'm so bad at definitions, you have this kind of unfolding through examples throughout the book. So we know it when we see it. And that is continuous. It's fluid. It's flowing. I think that is what will keep, there will be continue to be examples that show that viral justice is vital in our society and how it progresses. In fact, since the book came out, I've been still collecting examples as the days go. And so now when I'm invited to talk about it, oftentimes there are examples that aren't even in the book that just happened last week or mm -hmm. yesterday. Because like you said, it's a way of looking at what's happening around us. And to me, you know, I think, you know, I'm a student of the late, great Octavia E. Butler. Yeah. And she taught us that we can do anything if we can convince ourselves it's been done before, <laughs> you know? So part of it is to know the tradition, know what's happening around us, because then we can build on it. And so that's why I'm always looking for evidence of what I want to see more of so I can water it, I can shine a light on it so we can learn from it. And so, you know, again, there's examples that have happened in the last few months since the book came out that I'm like, oh man, I wish I would have wrote about that. I wish I would have known about that, yes. but it just happened. So I couldn't have, you know, but I, now I get to talk about it. Exactly. And you say in the book that privilege is a euphemism for tyranny. How can conversations about privilege form a better society? You know, I think, you know, privilege is one of those terms that has gone mainstream like everybody and their mother and grandma <laughs> can throw around like, I, that idea of owning your privilege and, oh, that's privilege. And so it has a certain utility and a way of naming things that were perhaps invisible to some before. But privilege also sounds really good. Like we all want privilege. Like it sounds very appealing when in fact there are some forms of privilege that create, wreak havoc in people's lives that are very destructive and dangerous and violent. And so because we have this one word that's naming everything, the things that are desirable that we want everyone to have access to, but also the things that are damaging that we want no one to have access to, this very elastic term, I think, doesn't, it, it, we need to think about a greater vocabulary for naming these different things. And so when I say privilege is a euphemism for tyranny, it's because there's a certain category of privilege that is very tyrannical in the, in the way that it monopolizes power and it robs people of their agency. And so I wanted, I was talking about this specifically in the context of colorism and the kind of ways that colorism operates in people's lives. It's not just interpersonal where some people are seen as more desirable than others, but we can look at the way that colorism is structured in our institutions in terms of the categories of students that get better attention than others, that are thought to be more, smarter than others. We can look in our jails and prisons. There have been studies that showed, depending on one's complexion, you can be charged with the same crime and get a harsher sentence based on your skin complexion. So to me, that doesn't sound like privilege. <laughs> that sounds like a form of tyranny that's operating through this particular hierarchy. 
So I'm inviting us to think about the real harms associated with some categories of power that we tend to just call privilege. And I'm saying it's it's more than that. Yes. And it's interesting that you say that privilege has become mainstream because I think it's something, unfortunately, that has become overused. Like, oh, you have privilege and oh, you have privilege. And is that word fitting for the conversation that is being had? And I often see privilege now as a barrier than a bridge. And I think that privilege should be a bridge of how like you have access to this. How do you bring others to have what you have? And it's not as hard as it's deemed to be. And it shouldn't be like a slur or anything like, oh, you have privilege. It should be something that you're aware of and you bring access for other people to have. I love that. Yeah, one of the sort of recurring themes in viral justice is this idea that what we're doing is not charity work. It's not something that some people do on behalf of others. When we start to look through a solidaristic lens, look how we're interconnected. Look how what benefits me can benefit you. What harms me potentially harms you. So that even when someone seems to be the beneficiary of a system of oppression, On one level, they are privileged, but on another, there are often hidden consequences, long-term embodied things that have to do with their health and stress of living in an unequal society that they're not fully attuned to so that their so-called privilege backfires. It actually can harm them. When we look state by state, country by country, places that where there's more equity of all kinds, everyone is doing better. those who are the so-called haves and have-nots. In places where that gap is wider, whether we're talking about economic, gender, race, the so-called haves in more unequal places, there's a part, a way in which they're also suffering from certain kinds of anxiety and addiction and suicide and isolation because it's not good. Inequality is not good for any of us, (laughs) not just those who are the explicit targets. So that invitation in the book for us to think about how our fates are linked, how when we work towards a more egalitarian and just society, that's not charity work. That's something that we're doing for everyone, not just those who are currently suffering the most in our unequal society. Yes. How do you want to elevate the conversation on what we know about social justice as you wrote about Erica Garner and Christian Cooper? So, you know, Erica Garner, the daughter of Eric Garner, who was murdered in New York by police, she herself uh, suffered a heart condition and also died at a very young age. And so I'm introducing her story and what she endured as part of a larger conversation about weathering. Weathering is a public health concept that describes the way that the stressors and oppressors in our lives get under our skin get into our bloodstream, wear us down over time. Sometimes we're not even aware of the way that that, that's impacting and, and wearing us down. And so she was fighting on the streets, trying to draw attention to what happened to her father. You know, she was organizing, she had the bullhorn and, and still her body was internalizing the stress and strain and really heartache of losing her beloved father at a young age. And so part of what I'm inviting us to do is to think about the connection between our environments, the kind of environments that we have to live in that are often hostile, and 
how we might suffer individually and to say that individual suffering is connected to these wider processes. So if we want to talk about public health, we want to talk about, you know, health disparities, we need to look at transforming the social and we can't do this piecemeal. We can't just, you know, have better access to doctors and clinics without looking at people's workplaces. What's that like? What kind of workplace do you have to endure? How, how, what's your experience like in school, in your neighborhood? Is it safe and quiet? Is there green space? So all of these environmental factors impact our health, not just a little bit of time that we spend in a hospital or with a doctor. And so thinking ahead, moving forward, it offers a wider frame for us to understand what we're up against, weathering, but also where we can begin to seed more life-affirming and healthy dynamics and practices and environments so that we can all thrive. Yes. And what about for Christian Cooper? He was, of course, the bird watcher at a park in New York City. I want to say it was Central Park, where he was accosted by Amy Cooper, no relation, with her, who was with her dog who wasn't on a leash. Christian asked her to put the dog on a leash, and she in turn made it about herself and called the police on him. And uh, in turn, he did press charges against her, which caused a lot of conversation. Just your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I think it's important that we're talking about that with fem a feminist book club, because there's a way in which white femininity was weaponized in that interaction, where because it was filmed, we saw her turn on the tears and feigned distress as she was talking to the police. In one moment, she was the aggressor. And then when she got on the phone with the police, all of a sudden she became the victim. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, a real call to action for us to understand, as I said at the beginning, that we can't be working for gender equality without taking into consideration gendered racism and the way that race and gender and class inter intersect. And in this particular case, we see the way that not just white femininity was weaponized, but where a certain kind of carceral feminism was in action, where she's relying on the police to mediate this interaction with a Black man. What's ultimately interesting about how that story plays out is that while it was very sensational and that we got to see on tape what many of us have experienced with no one watching, that weathering of the hostility and the dis discrimination, but in the end, Cooper, what's the Christian Cooper, he, he was not supportive in, like, helping the the law enforcement address it. Like he was not trying to testify in court. He was like, you know what? This is not a case of just one bad apple. Just dealing with her is not going to solve this. This is part of a rotten orchard mm -hmm. that includes law enforcement. Like I might, this woman might've been the aggressor in this case, but the same people who are trying to now advocate for me, they're often the aggressors stopping and frisking me on a daily basis. And so- I think it's an important corrective there in this moment where people are calling for justice through the trials of individual police officers or individual racists. To, is that all we want? Is it just about these bad apples? Or do we have to really uproot this whole orchard that's rotten and not support these systems that were not designed for our well-being at all? So how do you want to continue to honor your family through your work? And I ask this question because the third sentence in the beginning of this book is you talking about growing up in your grandparents' house near Crenshaw Boulevard. I am from Los Angeles. 
And not only from Los Angeles, I was born, I was, I grew up in Baldwin Hills. So not only to see Los Angeles, but the Los Angeles that I know in the books that I read, whether it's um, fictional or not, is always just a joy to see. And to read your story amidst you defining viral justice was beautiful. How do you honor or continue to honor your family through your work? Yeah. So you're an L.A. homegirl. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, part of it, you know, is really thinking about what are the communities and the people that have buffered me from this hostile environment that have really created a shield against the stressors and oppressors that I described earlier. And so part of what I'm doing in the book, you know, a lot of times we read a book and then we read the acknowledgement section at the end or the beginning where they talk about who helped them and what got them through. And in many ways, the entire book is an acknowledgement of all of the people and communities and specifically this community right here in LA, Lamert Park, where growing up, I would have like random strangers pull me aside and shower love and attention and encouragement on me where it was expected like my well-being and my success was connected to theirs. They were rooting for me. So no matter where I've gone in the world, I've had that chorus of elders and community members in my head, in my ears, where I feel not only encouraged to do things that I may not otherwise, but I always feel that whatever I accomplish and whatever I manage to do it is a collective accomplishment. You know, it's like the Ubuntu. I am because we are, we are because I am. And so yes. in many ways now in talking about viral justice, all my talks start with an acknowledgement of that house that I grew up in, that community that raised me and the specific things that they poured into me as a young person. Because what I'm able to share now is many ways of overflow of everything that's been poured into me that I have now to give to others. and so. I hope people feel that the book as they're reading it is one love letter <laughs> to Black people, Black communities, Black families. Because oftentimes when we talk about race and racism, we focus rightly on the harms and the violence and the oppression. But the question is, is how are we still here? How are we still here in a place we were never meant to survive? And that is a result of all of the resources and care and love that that we have used to sustain each other and sustain us. So I wanted to give voice to that and highlight that and to say that, you know, the more that we can bear witness to it, the more that we can grow it and cultivate it for the next generations. You talked about the grind of content creation, particularly Black TikTokers. How is that part of viral justice? Yeah, there's a section in the chapter on work. That chapter is called Grind where I'm talking about this strike that happened where Black creators on TikTok were calling attention to the appropriation of their work and the stealing of their work. And I'll say that when I wrote that section, I, I had, didn't even have a TikTok account yet. Now I do. And I realize how hard it is to create good content. Like, seriously, it is a set of skills and expertise and work, and it takes time and a honing like other kinds of work and labor. Like you can't just get up there and just throw something up there and it's going to be good. Right. So it's funny that I wrote that section without, without actually realizing how much work and labor it takes. So now I appreciate even more the fact that people who were doing that work and putting that skill and expertise into this, all of a sudden someone else 
takes it, uses it, blows up, gets popular, makes money off of it with no credit, <laughs> with no investment back to you. So part of me writing that is to, one, highlight that even things that look fun and recreational and lighthearted, there's still work behind it <laughs> that we need to respect and, in this case, compensate. And so, again, as part of this longer, broader conversation in the book, it, each chapter takes a different area. That one's about work. There's a chapter on education called Lies. There's a chapter on, high, on, on healthcare called Exposed. So it's looking at different areas of our lives. And looking at, you know, the, the problems in those areas, but how people are addressing that. In this case, the conversation about TikTok is Black creators saying like, no, we're not going to be exploited in this. Like, we're going to show you the value of our work um, by essentially refusing to produce that content and showing how valuable it is. Like the whole platform will crumble <laughs> without our creativity. Right. <laughs> And you, please tell us more about your work at Princeton, particularly as the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. Yeah. So this is an undergrad-focused lab in which associates who are students partner with community organizations doing data justice work. And so we essentially find out what are the issues, what are the projects that organizations in different parts of the country are working on that relate to technology, that relate to data. It could be surveillance. It could be other kinds of issues. And then we partner with them and, and work on those. And so the students in the lab are artists, they're computer scientists, they're sociologists, they're from all different disciplines. And our common concern is around this relationship between technology and society so that we start to create and imagine technologies and a digital ecosystem that is not anti-Black as it is now. And we call attention to the harms of the current status quo when it comes to our digital lives. And then we work to create and imagine new forms of digital relations that are, are justice-oriented. And as my final question, where would you like our audience to buy viral justice from? I would love you to buy it at whatever independent bookstore you usually shop at or and Black women-owned bookstores. You can go to Harriet's Bookshop in Philly. You can go to Café Con Libros. Again, you can go to their websites at Café Con Libros in Brooklyn, Sisters Uptown in New York, or in LA, Salt Eaters or the Reparations Club, which is, you know, my neighborhood bookstore. So Salt Eaters and Reparations Club. So Black women-owned bookstores are the way to go. Todd Benjamin, thank you for joining us to talk about viral justice, how we grow the world we want. Thank you, Ashley. Love talking to you. Nao Partners, Inc. is a Black-owned commercial real estate, urban planning, and community engagement firm based in St. Paul, Minnesota. We believe in developing generative results in the community while addressing the pressing challenges facing urban-built environments. Our work and belief system is rooted in applied empathy and putting people first. Our approach delivers thoughtful, human-centered solutions for clients and cultivates sustainable relationships. We make a conscious effort to hire local residents as community liaisons, staff, and consultants to support engagement in local communities. We hire local talent as interns and have developed an artist-in-residence program in order to build up young and upcoming professionals within our community. We are currently hiring for our summer intern program. 
We provide real estate development and business technical assistance to small business owners, entrepreneurs, and companies that share our values. So if you're a business owner looking to do things the right way the first time, it's time to do things the NAO way. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.